You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Morning, friends. Glad you guys are here. Good to see your faces. Thanks for joining us at Midtown today. Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, Bet Midrash. These are the names given to the three stages of discipleship in first century Judaism, the three stages of religious instruction at that time. Here's how the stages went. First, children ages 6 to 10 in Bet Sefer would go to their local synagogue and be taught by the rabbi. And in those ages, they would memorize the first five books of our Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all memorized. And then, at age 10, they would have a choice. They could either start to get to know their family business or trade a little bit more and invest there, or, the best of the best students, they could move on to the next stage, Bet Talmud. And in Bet Talmud, between the ages of 10 and 14, students would be tasked with memorizing the rest of the Old Testament. That's the prophets, the writings, the wisdom literature... And then they'd have another choice. Again, they could either continue in their family trade or business, or the best of the best of the best students, they could move on to Bet Midrash. And in Bet Midrash, they would approach their local rabbi, and they'd ask if they could become his disciple. And the rabbi would then grill them with questions, like an interview sort of process. They'd ask them about the scriptures and how they interpret them. And based on their answers, the rabbi would determine, well, could this child become like me? By discipling me, could they become like a rabbi? And if they could, the rabbi would say, okay, great, you can be my disciple. And when the rabbi named this child as a disciple, it changed every part of their life. When they became a disciple, they'd leave their family behind and they'd travel all around the ancient world following their rabbi. Rabbis were known to travel from town to town and teach in different places, talk about the the scriptures in different places. They were known to imitate everything that their rabbi did. They discussed the scriptures in the same way. They'd ask the same sorts of questions. They'd eat the same food. They'd sleep in the same locations. They'd watch the same Netflix shows. Everything they did followed after the rabbi. Every part of their life was transformed. And this was so true that in the ancient world, there was a saying. We actually have Jewish texts that reflect the saying. People encouraged disciples to become covered in the dust of their rabbi. And that phrase is interesting to us, but in the ancient Near East, it made a lot of sense. Because traveling in the ancient world was a dusty affair. These were unpaved, dirty roads. And so if you're walking closely behind someone, it's inevitable that they're going to kick up some dust upon you. More than that, when rabbis taught, they would sit at an elevated position and their disciples would sit beneath them in their literal dust. Discipleship was a dusty affair. And when Jesus showed up in his earthly ministry, this is how discipleship worked. And he uses the language of discipleship to describe his followers. What he had in mind for a Christian is a life of clinging closely to him, becoming covered in the dust of his grace, his presence, his teaching, and his life. That's a working assumption of Jesus and of the scriptures, that the true Christian life, a life of peace and joy and love, it's available when we become disciples, when we follow closely behind our rabbi. In fact, this word disciple occurs over 260 times in the New Testament alone. The word Christian only occurs three times. And when the word Christian occurs, it refers to this new sect uh, of Jesus followers. They wanted to differentiate them from other Jewish believers at the time. Christian means disciple. 
And we live in a time today where, for many people, that hasn't been the picture they've been given of Christianity. Many of us have been handed a picture of Christianity that looks a lot more like believing a set of ideas or occasionally involving yourself in some religious activity. Holistic discipleship is not always in view, and this is a real problem in our American and Western pictures of Christianity. Uh, Dallas Willard talks about this in his book, The Great Omission. He says this, The governing assumption today, even among professing Christians, is that we can be Christians forever and never really become disciples. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom in every corner of human existence. Will they break out of the churches to become the church, to be, without human force or violence, his mighty force for good on earth, drawing those around them toward the eternal purposes of God. We're continuing in our teaching series here at Midtown called The Transformed Life. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at many of the central pillars of what it means to follow Jesus. We've been examining what this life of dusty discipleship looks like, how we get close to Jesus, how we experience him, and then follow him in everything we do. And today, to wrap up the series, we're going to see how Jesus' example of going to the world in need, not huddling away in religious spaces, but going to the world in need, is an essential part of what it means to follow him. So Jesus had a radically inclusive and outward-facing ministry. He didn't create holy huddles with impressive religious people and kind of tuck away in those corners. He went to the people that the world maligned, the last, the least, the lost, and he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was available to them. A kingdom of forgiveness and peace and justice and restoration. And so Jesus' example was to leave behind his comfort his convenience, and his social esteem, all so that the outsider might be welcomed in. And so that means, if we are to be his disciples, if we're to follow closely behind him, then we ought to do the same thing. We ought to leave our comfort, our convenience, and our social esteem to proclaim and embody the work and the way of Jesus in the world. An essential part of being a disciple means making disciples. And that notion was so foundational in Jesus' eyes that he included it in his final words to his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're in Matthew chapter 28, so the very last chapter of the book, verses 16 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can also follow along there. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a word that can strike fear in the hearts of many of us who've been raised in the church. Simply uttering it can make us quiver in fear or distaste. It can bring up anxiety or lots of weird, hard feelings for us. It's the word evangelism. Right? 
immediately, like certain things start firing in our brain and our heart when we hear that. And the word evangelism, it's the word that's been used largely to describe this command of Jesus, to make disciples here. Some of your church backgrounds might have used the phrase witnessing, but either way, similar phraseology. And the reason we gasp, the reason we get anxiety when we hear that word is because, if we're honest, a lot of the pictures of evangelism that we've seen have been kind of cringeworthy. It sparks in our minds pictures of pressure-filled sermons that are coercive or manipulative, that are from somebody of power on a stage to those who have less power beneath them. We think of a demeaning and angry person standing on a street corner and yelling at people who go by. We think of the ugliness of colonization throughout church history. With me on those images? And the result of those mental caricatures is that for many of us, we just ignore this command, making disciples. We just don't practice it. According to a recent study, nearly 60% of American Christians right now said they had exactly zero conversations with a non-Christian about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the last six months. Zero. None. We become people who are scared of being socially outcast or viewed as weird or harmful because of all those bad examples. So we just avoid the practice altogether. But here's the crazy thing. The stats don't actually back up our fears. There's another poll done by Lifeway Research, and in the poll, 61% of people who said they are religiously unaffiliated also said they are curious and want to learn about the religious and spiritual beliefs of their neighbors and friends. So the people that we are scared of going and talking to actually desire to get to know what we believe and why we believe it. In reality, most people don't think talking about faith and spirituality is all that weird. There's another poll done by Barner Research, and it said that more than 70% of non-Christians who had had evangelistic conversations one-on-one said that they had positive experiences, not negative ones. Seven out of ten, one-on-one conversations with Christians. They said, well, I walked away with a sense of peace or curiosity, or it actually helped me understand my neighbor better. So negative stereotypes and bad examples abound, and we want to avoid those things. But the reality is that we live in a culture that is actually really receptive to spiritual conversations, really open. And if we aren't going to talk to them, nobody will. And Jesus, friends, seemed to think this was pretty dang important. He used his final words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to proclaim that being a disciple means making disciples. There is no picture of discipleship of Jesus without inviting others to walk with you in the same way. And so it should spark some reflection for us. How do we do this well? How do we avoid becoming one of those negative examples in our minds, those caricatures? And how do we become people who spark healthy conversations spiritually with those around us? And as it turns out, the passage we just read in Matthew 28 gives us three important things to remember that can teach us how to do this well. It reminds us, first, who we are as disciples, second, what we witness to, and third, how we witness well. Who we are as disciples, what we witness to, and how we witness well. First, who we are as disciples. We arrive at this passage after an arduous last week for the closest followers of Jesus. Just a few days before, they had actually followed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, This is the triumphal entry, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It was the coronation of a new king, people felt. This king who had come to heal and redeem, to free the captives from their oppression. And the disciples felt that this was the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. They wanted Jesus to come in and step on their oppressors and put them in power. They thought that's what was coming. And things only went downhill after that day. That same week, one of Jesus' closest friends betrayed him, turned him in to the ones who wanted to kill him. And in the dark of night, the slimy and corrupt religious leaders put on a sham trial full of false witnessing, false testimonies. They beat him 
They accosted him. They accused him of blasphemy. He was beaten in the street by the cops. They brought him before the Roman, Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate, at that point, just kind of wanted to keep a mob out of the way. And so he washed his hands of the whole deal and had Jesus handed over to be killed. And he was hung on a tree five days after that coronation ceremony. He was crucified. He died. And he was buried. And so by the end of this week, these disciples are isolated, they're traumatized, they're confused, and they're full of despair. But then, after a couple of days, something really unexpected happens. Right before this passage in Matthew 28 that we read together. When all of the disciples are cowering away, kind of licking their wounds, trying to figure out what's next, Mary, faithful Mary, approaches the tomb of Jesus to grieve and to mourn. And she finds that he's alive. It's not a ghost. It's not a hallucination. It's not a Jesus doppelganger. It's the real, living Jesus. And he tells this woman to do something remarkable. He tells her to go and whip those guys back into shape. He says, go and tell them what you have seen, what you've experienced. He says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And you'd think that that news, when Mary gives that to the disciples, would spark an immediate reaction from them. You'd think that they'd be sprinting out the door to go to Jesus, but that's not how the story goes. See, remember, these are deeply wounded disciples. And when they show up in verse 16 here, they've been walking for something like three to four days. That's about how long it takes to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee. So they're exhausted. They're not sprinting to Jesus. They're limping spiritually, emotionally, physically. And Matthew wants us to see that in this text. It's a small detail, but as you notice, in verse 16, he mentions that it's the 11 disciples who show up. Now, those of you that know the story would know why that's weird. Why might that be weird? Because there's 12 disciples, right? It's a reminder to us of the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who betrayed this crew. It's a reminder of what they've been through here, that they show up incomplete, broken, lacking in some way. That's what the number 11 is signifying here. They're an incomplete and broken unit, confused and in need. Friends, being a disciple means that we are 11-ish. That we follow Jesus as an incomplete community of people in need of him. The only way to walk with Jesus is to walk with a limp. To be people who acknowledge our need and our dependence and pursue Jesus in the midst of it. And then, if that detail wasn't enough to hit this point home, look at verse 17. It says they worship him, they see him. It's an amazing experience. They fall to their faces. But some doubt it. What a remarkable detail. Some doubt it. These closest friends of Jesus, in the midst of this enrapturing experience, still have their doubts and difficulties. Friends, those disciples were, spoiler alert, human. Just like us. And just like us, sensible humans, they know fully well that people don't rise from the grave. Gods don't die. They know how crazy this story sounds. And so they have doubts, hesitations, in the midst of this experience. It's a reminder to us that our hesitations, our doubts, and our difficulties aren't disqualifiers to discipleship. Certainty is not a prerequisite for being a Christian. These people are staring directly at the resurrected Jesus and they're like, okay, but hold up for a sec, though. Are we sure? They're befuddled, they're confounded, they're amazed, just as we so often are. Doubts are not antithetical to faith, they are supplementary. From the very outset of Christianity, doubt is playing a crucial role in the formation of Jesus' disciples. Real discipleship doesn't mean we show up with all the answers. It means we show up with all the questions. 
Real discipleship gets into the mud and the mire, the hard and the unexplainable. Real discipleship says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the rational inquisitor alongside childlike wonder. And it forms us. Those hesitations, when we bring them before Jesus, they shape us. We grow from them. And the great author George MacDonald put it this way. He said, do you love your faith so little that you've never battled a single fear lest your faith should not be true? Where there are no doubts, no questions, no perplexities, there can be no growth. So the question is not whether we will doubt. We will go through things, we will go hard, through hardships, we'll have questions, it'll happen. It's about what we do with our doubt that makes us disciples. Notice what the disciples do here. They show up. They bring all of their messiness, all of their emotional and mental and spiritual wrestling with them into worship with God. Discipleship means showing up with our limps in the middle of our doubts and bringing it all to Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds to them. He doesn't condemn them for the doubt. The text says he comes to them and speaks to them. That's what Jesus does in the midst of our hesitation, in the midst of our limps and doubts. And that is remarkably good news, friends. That the God of the universe, the source of all life and love and peace and goodness, meets us in the middle of our limps and our doubts. All that Jesus asks of us is that we show up. We trust in him and trust our lives to his way, whatever condition or context that might look like. The disciple of Jesus is not marked by their superior knowledge or worldly impressiveness. They're marked by their dustiness. Their ongoing trust and following of Jesus as healer, as friend, as savior, as Lord on all the dusty roads of their life. So that's who we are. Before Jesus says anything here, we find out who we are as disciples. We're reminded of that truth. But then we also find out in verse 18 the reality that we witness to, the reality that we evangelize towards. Notice that before Jesus tells the disciples to do anything, he says something about himself. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that's a striking statement because he uses the word all and heaven and earth. He's talking about everything seen and unseen. There's nothing excluded here. After Jesus' death and resurrection, there is nothing else that has final word in God's universe. There's no political reality, no social reality, no physical reality, no spiritual reality that can stop the kingdom of heaven from coming. This is the truth that Jesus had been speaking all throughout his ministry. When he spoke of the kingdom of heaven, he said that his life, his death, his resurrection was the announcement that a greater kingdom had won and no other ruler could win. And that kingdom is what all of us are deeply longing for in our lives. It's a kingdom where forgiveness is found for even the most broken of us. It's a kingdom where the addict finds freedom from their vice. It's a kingdom where justice comes for all those who've been marginalized or oppressed. It's a kingdom where the mourners are comforted. It's a kingdom where the weak are strengthened. It's a kingdom where the earth is healed. It's a kingdom where all brokenness is mended. Amen? Amen? That's the kingdom that has arrived. That's the kingdom that is bursting forth into our world. Unstoppable. That's the kingdom that we are inviting people into, that we are witnessing to. There's an acclaimed author named uh, Frederick Beekner who puts it this way. He said, if only we had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God, in a sense of holiness, goodness, beauty, is as close as breathing. And it's crying out to be born both within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what we, all of us, hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that that's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers 
We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it at some moment of crisis. A strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It's home. And whether we realize it or not, I think we, all of us, are homesick for it. That's the reality we witness to. That's the reality we're inviting people into. It's the reality that our limping and doubting lives and the limping and doubting world is being healed and redeemed and restored. And all of that happens before we do anything. That's what this passage is saying. All of that happens. We find out who we are and who Jesus is before we're given any task to do. And then Jesus gives us a task. How we evangelize and witness well. And this command that Jesus gives in verses 19 through 20, it's really telling us what witnessing or evangelism is and isn't. It's a really helpful tool for us. So we're going to unpack those things. We're going to talk about what witnessing is and isn't. And then we're going to talk about how we do this well in our own lives. Cool? With me? All right. So what witnessing is and isn't. First, witnessing is invitational, not coercive. It's invitational, not coercive. And we see this in the word that Jesus uses right at the start of his command. He uses the word go. And there's actually a multitude of scholars who bring up that a better rendering of this linguistic phrase is as you go. It implies a continuous and ongoing thing. That is, as you disciple Jesus, you will invite others along with you. It will flow naturally out of your discipleship. Authentic discipleship of Jesus creates naturally invitational people, which means that witnessing or evangelism isn't a conversation you have to force. You will be given opportunities simply by the way that you live. Because people will look at you and say, there's something really different about this person. They sacrificially love me in a different way. And that gives you an open window. You don't have to force it down people's throats. You don't have to coerce people. It comes out of our discipleship, out of our destinies. Witnessing is being so formed and shaped by Jesus in our lives and our decision-making that people look at us differently. And then we open the opportunity to witness to them about why we're different. There's a pastor friend I know who tells a story of an Uber driver he met. He got in a car and started talking with the Uber driver. And at one point, the Uber driver asked him the inevitable question, what do you do for work? And as a pastor, he's like, oh, this is always the worst because it's a way, great way to shut down all conversation, right? saying you're a pastor. So he says, I'm a pastor? And the guy's like, oh, amazing. I just became a Christian a couple weeks ago. And my friend breathed a sigh of relief. He's like, oh, amazing. So tell me what happened. Tell me your story. And the Uber driver responded with this statement. He said, well, have you ever heard of Buffalo Wild Wings? <laughs> my pastor friend said, this is, this is going to be good. He said that over, for over a year, he'd go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch sports every Sunday. And nearly every week, there was a waitress who served him there all the time. But she was different than other waitresses he had interacted with. She always had a peace and a joy about her, even on days where she was overwhelmed or stressed. And she always asked more intentional questions than other people. She didn't just ask, how's your day? She followed up with him. She remembered his name, remembered his life. And eventually, because they got to know each other well, they got on the subject of church. And she invited him to her church. And immediately he was like, no, that's where the weirdos go. I'm not going there. But then he started to put it together. Well, she's not a weirdo. And so one Christmas Eve, he showed up, and he was wary of the weirdos, but he couldn't find any in the church. So everyone was like this woman, really authentic followers of Jesus, who were honest and open. And, well, I kept going. I kept going, and I kept going. And eventually, he welcomed the kingdom of God into his life. The radical, life-changing truth of Jesus and what he's done in the world changed his life. Friends, 
This man's life was utterly changed simply because this waitress invited him as she went. Invited him in the midst of her life. She lived her life as a disciple of Jesus and it opened up these opportunities for her. That's what witnessing is all about. It's invitational, not coercive. We do it as we go. That's the first thing. Second thing, witnessing is holistic, not hurried. It's holistic, not hurried. The verb that Jesus uses here is literally to disciple. Make disciples, it's just to disciple. And it implies a gradual process. See, Jesus could have used a more rushed and aggressive verb. He could have used a verb like win, convert, or preach, but he doesn't. He uses disciple. Because discipleship is more like inviting someone into a holistic journey of learning and growing. That's what we're inviting people into. We're not making converts, we're making disciples. This way of witnessing, it doesn't force people into a rushed conclusion or religious ritual. That's a surefire way to send people away. That's what's happening in our culture. This is relational. It's meeting people wherever they are and investing in them in the midst of their spiritual journey and inviting them alongside you to be a holistic follower of Jesus. And this bears itself out in our lives. Those of us that would call ourselves followers of Jesus, think about who the most influential people were in your story. My guess is that they were pastors or parents or co-workers or friends who walked with you in the long term, who invested in you over years in lots of conversations on your best and your worst days. All of us become disciples because a Christian or Christians invest and pray and love and invite to know and follow Jesus alongside them. They don't come to us as people who have all the answers that need to deliver them to us. They're people who have questions and walk with Jesus and invite us to do the same. It's holistic, not hurried. Third thing about this sort of witnessing. It's ongoing, not one time. The final two words that Jesus uses here. After make disciples, they fit neatly underneath that verb. He says that you are to baptize and to teach. And the implication is that we walk with people both into the decision that they make to turn their lives around and follow Jesus, but we also walk with them beyond it. We don't get people in the tent and then wash our hands of the situation. So, baptism. It's a powerful sign and seal of what God has done. It's about the reception of Jesus in our lives, his life, death, and resurrection. It's a movement from a previous life of brokenness into a life of wholeness, into a new family. And it's an amazing celebratory act. As anyone in here has been baptized, whether that was when they were small or when they were big, it was a transformative and powerful day. They probably remember the date. They remember details. It's an amazing time. And if you're someone in this room who's thinking about discipling Jesus and not sure, or if you're somebody who would say, I've discipled Jesus for a while and I haven't been baptized, I want to talk to you about it. Because it's an amazing opportunity, a marker in your life. We ought to baptize, that's definitely true. But we also teach. And by inference, we learn together. That's what we're doing here today. Teaching implies learning. Baptism, friends, is the starting point, not the end game. It's the starting line, not the finish line. So after we are baptized, we are to sit and to learn alongside all these other disciples. It's an ongoing journey. And those of us that have followed Jesus for a while can probably say, you know, I think I've been converted a few times. Right? I think there's been points in my life where something has actually changed my understanding of myself and Jesus. I'm growing. It's an ongoing journey, not a one-time thing. There is certainly a marker where we turn. That's definitely true, where we turn from a life of brokenness and sin, but we continue to grow in that journey. And that's actually why here at Midtown we've developed a thing called a discipleship pathway. This is what we use to design everything we do at this church. This discipleship pathway has four stages to it. And I want to be really clear when we talk about this. This isn't, the goal isn't to grade us as Christians. 
It's not to talk about like leveling up as Christians. It's just intuitive language to describe the spiritual journey. Intuitive language to describe, well, kind of this is where I am right now, or this is where I started, and this is where I'm moving. So first, we want to create space for curious folks. These are folks who are interested in Jesus, who want to ask good questions, maybe who have built a trusting relationship with a Christian, but they need space to process and learn. And they wouldn't call themselves Jesus followers yet. They're just kind of growing and learning. We want to create space for that. And then, typically, those curious folks end up saying, you know what, I kind of want to invest a little bit more. I want to get connected to a community. I want to invest in these people a little bit more. They may not call themselves a Christian yet, but they're investing and taking another step. And then from there, what you find is that people who invest for a little while will tend to move on to this new stage, this growing stage, where they say, I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been baptized or I'm ready to be baptized. And now I'm building new rhythms in my life. Rhythms like prayer, giving myself away, serving my neighbors, reading scripture, giving their money away. And then, finally, our hope is that those growing people continue to grow into fruitful people who pour back into curious people, who are now looking out into the world and saying, okay, who else can I invite into this amazing, life-changing journey? How can I orient the whole of my life around this? And one thing, this isn't about reaching a destination either. Fruitful people are still growing, are still rooted, and are still curious. Right? The goal is that this all works together. This isn't about arriving at level 10 Christian and we've made it. The goal is to remember that this is an ongoing journey and that discipleship, making disciples, is not a one-time deal. We keep walking with each other. We keep supporting one another. We keep loving one another. So that's what witnessing is and isn't. It's intentional, not coercive. It's holistic, not hurried. And it's ongoing, not one time. Now, how do we become those sorts of people? Well, I've got five helpful tips that have been helpful for me and many others. First tip for how we witness well. Listen well to people and ask good questions. Actually take the time to listen to the stories of others. Friends, no one in our culture listens to each other. We talk past one another and we end up hating each other for it. What if you were someone who listened really well, who understood the hopes and the despairs of the people who you spoke with? What if you were someone who understood the music or the movies or the things that kindle spiritual longing in them, the beauty of a sunset or a sunrise? When you listen for those things, it will help you spark a loving relationship with them and help open doors to connect that to the beauty of the gospel. So listen well and ask good questions. Second, be where the people are. We live in a time where Christians love to silo. I teach a class at GCU, and I had a student one time who came in, and we had an assignment that was about connecting with a non-Christian about their understanding of Jesus. And they came up to me after class, and they're like, I don't know anybody who's not a Christian. I know zero people. It's actually more common than you think. We love to silo. And if we're to witness well, we can't silo. We've got to spend time with people who aren't Christians. So go to your local coffee shop and get to know the barista well. Go hiking with your coworkers. Join folks at a concert or movie or restaurant. Become known in your context or neighborhood as someone who loves people well and serves them well. Become curious, weird in people's mind. Like they're weird at how loving they are. That will give people a healthy picture of Jesus. That's the only way that they'll see Jesus is if they see a healthy Jesus follower. That's the second tip. Third tip, pay attention to people on the fringe. Remember that Jesus was always on the lookout for those people. The ostracized, the lonely, the needy. He went there. And so we have to have eyes in the same way, looking around, identifying what the needs are, who the lowest are, who the least are, who the last are, and we go to them. We spend time with them. One example of this that I thought of this week, uh, you guys remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? 
So the story of Fred Rogers, he actually was going to become a Presbyterian minister. Go Presby's, right? Become a Presbyterian minister. <laughs> but he was looking around his home city of Pittsburgh, and he saw, man, kids programming is awful. It's kind of brain melting. It's like silly, slapsticky. He's like, a need for the least in our community, the kids, a need is to make good, holistic child programming. So I'm going to invest my time and energy there. And he changed a whole generation of people. We all know Mr. Rogers. And every time we watch him, we're like, man, amazing, this guy. <laughs> the love of Jesus just emanates from him, right? He did his job really well because he looked around at the most needy in his culture, saw what they needed, and then sought to fill that need. It's an amazing example of what this looks like. And that leads to the fourth tip, love like Jesus, which seems like a no-duh, but it's actually amazing how often people don't think of the characteristics of Jesus when they think of Christians. It's only possible to change that narrative if they know Christians who are different. The only way to help people understand who Jesus is is to give them Christians that look like Jesus. We have to love like Jesus. Miroslav Wolf put it this way. He said, if evangelism isn't an expression of love of neighbor, then it isn't Christian evangelizing. And love of neighbor includes not only what I say to them, but how I say it. Fifth thing. Pray about it. Guys, how can we say that we love anyone if we're not praying for them? If we believe that God loves them and wants to meet their needs, how could we ever say that we love them and don't lift their needs up to God? Pray for them. Pray for opportunities from God. Pray for God to open up your mind and your heart into conversations that you might be able to share the love of Jesus with folks. Praying for our neighbors is essential in this journey. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went on a trip with my in-laws, my wife's family. We went ATV riding for my father-in-law's birthday up in Cottonwood, Arizona, so near the Verde River. That's all a whole bunch of unpaved, dirty, dusty roads. And so we have to wear like special gear, or goggles, and then I was like, oh, I won't need to wear a mask. I got like five minutes into the ride, I'm like, I am breathing in dust, like I need to put a mask on. And so in this front car, Emily and I are in the, the front ATV uh, with two of her siblings. And uh, we're driving forward. We're getting really dusty as we're driving. The dust is just kicking up in front of us. It's like, man, this is amazing and weird, and it's going to be fun to talk about this later, uh, maybe in a sermon or something. And then, um, <laughs> and then eventually we stop off and get some water, and there's another ATV behind us. The rest of her family is in this ATV behind us. We thought we were dusty. We were kicking up dust. All, they only were driving through a cloud of dust that we had kicked up onto them. And the result is this. This is what they look like. This is my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. Oh they can't see out of their goggles, like completely dusty. Uh, I think I have a second picture of them up here, too. Uh, one more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, they look like, they look like powdered donuts. Right? They were so covered in the dust. And I thought that was a perfect picture of what it means to be a dusty disciple. It means, it means clinging so closely to Jesus that we get dusty. But not only that, that we kick up dust onto our neighbors and our friends. That we would be so dusty that it would be obvious to everyone around us that the dust covers us and that we are kicking it up on them too. That's our goal, to go into our Zoom meetings, in our classrooms, into our neighborhoods, into our restaurants, into our city and kick up a bunch of dust everywhere. So, I want you guys to close your eyes and take a deep breath real quick. And I want you to picture a friend or a neighbor or a coworker who doesn't know Jesus, someone in your mind right now. And pay attention to their posture, how they're sitting, their facial expression, their characteristics. 
Now open your eyes. Can you commit to loving that person over the next year and conveying the love of Jesus to them every day? Can you commit to inviting them to become dusty right alongside you? Can you commit to inviting them into a midst of the relationship that you already have with Jesus, this abundant, life-altering, joy-filled kingdom life? Because Jesus has the authority to do that. He actually did it with 11 broken, limping, doubting, trusting people. He can definitely do it in this room. So let's go into our weeks, into our days, into our months, into our years, and let's invite people into this restorative kingdom. Let's, Midtown, kick up some dust in Phoenix, Arizona. Let's pray, friends.